Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. Timothy Snyder is the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University. A renowned scholar and one of America's leading public intellectuals, he is the author of many critically acclaimed and award-winning books, including Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, and On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Professor Snyder visited UCD School of History in October 2017, where he spoke about Black Earth, the Holocaust as History and Warning, his book which was first published in 2015. So what, what I'd like to do is spend the next three quarters of an hour with you presenting the argument from, from Black Earth. So Black Earth is a, a history of the Holocaust, and it's a traditional history in the sense that it does recount the events from 1933 to 1945, but its, its particular emphasis or its, its, its particular valence is its, is its um, emphasis on explanation. So where I began the book was from the observation, which others might contest, that Holocaust studies had moved into a memorial mode without ever having achieved satisfactory explanation and that the memorial mode was taking up the space that would have been needed for explanatory work and that in particular the memorial mode allowed us, perhaps ironically, to fall back into national modes of discussing the Holocaust because when one discusses memory, one invariably discusses a national memory and almost always one's national memory. There is data to back up these assertions. So the last time I looked, which was a couple of years ago, well over 90% of the conferences devoted to the Holocaust were not devoted to the Holocaust, but they were devoted to the memory of the Holocaust, which is a quite different subject. And for me, it, poses, it always poses, memory in general poses what I think of as the genitive question, uh, which is probably a slightly perverse way of putting it, having to do with having studied too many languages, which is memory, memory of what? And do we have the of what? So this book is, is an interpretive book. It's, an, it's, it's a book which makes, which makes arguments. But at the same time, it makes these arguments very much on the basis of primary sources, in particular Jewish primary sources. Because for, for me, another irony of what had happened to the Holocaust is that it had become enclosed in German history and in German sources, which of course are indispensable, uh, but which cannot by their nature capture the perspective of the victims, since 97% of the victims of the Holocaust did not know the German language. Um, there is a sort of myth which says those sources are lost. In, in, in the context of the Holocaust, people use the word lost, and then it sounds pathetic, and we're supposed to then understand that something terrible has happened to them. But in fact, the reverse is true. It's remarkable how many sources we do have in Russian, Yiddish, Polish, and other, in, in, in the other languages which Jews spoke at the time. It's remarkable how much effort Jews themselves went to to create sources at the time. And it's also remarkable how many initiatives there were during and immediately after the war to preserve those sources, which for me is, is a reason to begin from them. So what I'd like to do here is present the two arguments of, of the book, the two unfamiliar causal arguments of the book, beginning from things 
that Jews actually said about, about their predicament. So the way the argument in Black Earth works, um, and I'm presenting it now in a very schematic way, is that adding to or complementing the traditional argument from ideology, which I accept in, in a certain form, um, I add to ideology, an ideology of what I think of as global anti-Semitism, the, the factor of ecological panic and, and, the factor, and the factor of the state. And rather than running through how the book works, I'm going to present each of these arguments beginning from the point of view of, of a Jewish survivor, um, or in some cases not a survivor. So let me begin with ecology. With ecology, a couple of sources that struck me particularly were, one, um, a, a, a Jewish revisionist Zionist, a man called Feldshu, who was one of the leaders of the, the, the ghetto uprising of 1943 on the right wing, on the right wing side. Um, who, in referring to the Jewish ghetto and the destruction of the Jewish ghetto, left these, these poignant words, people lived under the earth, which struck me as, a, as an interesting way of putting that situation. People were living in basements in, north, uh, in, in, in northeastern Warsaw, the territory which had been defined as the ghetto, um, and they had turned those basements into bunkers in many cases. And from those bunkers, they were trying to hold off Germans um, who very quickly moved to the, the tactic of flamethrowing the bunkers to drive people out and then shoot, shooting them when they came out. But Feldshu's comment was, had, this, had this interesting ecological air to it. We were living under the earth. Or to take, um, to take an, an example which is, which, is, which is more famous, the Hungarian Jewish poet um, Radnoti, who was a forced laborer at the end of the war and in anticipation of his own death, kept poetry, um, which he, 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 was, he, was, he wrote poetry his whole life. He was a poet. That's what you do if you're a poet. And he kept it in a small book, which he kept in his left breast pocket. And on the outside of the booklet in, I think, eight languages, maybe six, he's, he left instructions saying, when my body is found, um, please make sure that these poems are, are, are published. So he was, in fact, murdered close to the end of the war. His body was, in fact, buried in a pit. It was, in fact, found. And here, here, here's one line from one of the poems, or, or a few lines in English. I, the root, was once the flower. Under these dim tons, my bower, comes the shearing of the thread. Death saw wailing overhead. Now, I mean, many things are striking about this. One is the ability of people to compose poetry in these conditions, right? It, I mean, for me, the whole idea that there is no poetry after Auschwitz is itself a barbarism because it denies the capacity of people to be civilized in precisely these barbaric conditions. There's, there's that. There's also the reminder of how so many people, in both of these quotations, of how so many people actually died in the Holocaust. That is to say, the first, and in my opinion, the decisive uh, killing technology of the Holocaust was shooting people at close range. The, 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 the death factories of Belgium, Sobibor, Treblinka, Helmno, Auschwitz, come online later and they kill about the same number of people, maybe slightly more. But it's, it's the murder by bullets at close range which, which begins the process and which, this is for me the decisive thing, which instructs Germans that this kind of thing is possible. Um, it's long before the gas chambers are online that... Um, that the discussion about a new form of final solution um, that is killing people where they live has, has, has begun. But the thing that I want to, to draw on is the way that at the end, at the end of his life, this, this Hungarian poet, um, this Jewish poet, is associating himself again, again with the earth. 
And what I want to try to draw from this, from this poem is the intuition that maybe he has it right. That, that, I mean, I could multiply these examples of the way that Jews would talk about the earth. Um, not, uh, and and I want to, what I want to move from the intuition that perhaps there's something in the sources that we have missed or not taken seriously enough. I think the thing that we have missed is the ecological the ecological construction or the ecological description that one can put on the Holocaust. So if we now move back a couple of decades in time and and shift from the minds of these Jews who are dying towards the end of the Holocaust towards the mind that was most important to its conception and execution to to Adolf Hitler and in in Mein Kampf, it's, it's very striking how at the very beginning of Mein Kampf, Hitler begins from an ecological description. Now, I should be really clear, I get into more trouble with this in Germany than, than in, in the English-speaking world, but it's a little bit unclear everywhere. By ecological, I don't mean in the sense of you recycle and that's a good thing. By ecological, I mean in the sense of un- looking, at, looking at life in terms of your relationship to the, to the biological world. That's what I mean by ecological. I mean, I mean in a neutral sense. So Hitler begins from what I would call his ecology. His ecology, which is presented in the first few pages of Mein Kampf, um, says that all that there is on the planet is resources. That's the only meaningful thing. The meaningful resource is land. The reason why land is a meaningful resource is that we extract, we extract food from land. He moves on to this. The second obs- from this, the second observation is that humans are essentially like animals. Human races, he says, are essentially like human species. The way that human life exists is or should exist is by way of competition which involves the stronger surviving the stronger races starving the weaker races that would be a good thing right the closest thing that hitler comes to an idea of the good is that we actually do away with all our all our ideas of the good and revert to a competition in which some of us starve other other people now there are two important implications about this um, for ethics which i think maybe sometimes get a bit little bit of short shrift the, the, the first thing is that from this comes the nature of Hitler's anti-Semitism, which is, which is a very radical form, I think probably the most radical possible form of anti-Semitism, because what Hitler, Hitler's idea is that we might believe that there are things in the world besides a, a, a competition to starve. We might believe that. We might believe that there are reasons to show mercy or express solidarity or spare others. If we believe any of those things for any reason, be it Christian mercy, um, be it human solidarity, be it working class solidarity, be it a legal contract, be it a constitutional regime, be it the rule of law, if we believe that there should be solidarity or reciprocity or mercy for any reason, that means that our brains have been taken over by Jews. That's where Hitler's anti-Semitism begins. Um, The Jews have the special capacity, according to Hitler, of importing into our minds things that ought not to be there. Our minds ought to function in an essentially bestial mode. These ideas that allow us to recognize anyone beyond our own race, as Hitler sees race, beyond our race as human, if we, if we are able to do that, that's precisely evidence of Jewish presence in the world and therefore in our minds. And the conclusion he draws is that the only way to get the Jews out of our minds is to get them off the face of the planet. And when that happens, the earth and we on the earth revert back to the proper ecology um, because there will no longer be any source of what he sees as, 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 as these perversions. A second implication, which is often overlooked, I think, has to do with, with, um, with science. Um, 
there are passages in, 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 in Mein Kampf which are perhaps understandably overlooked about the hybridization of grain, about irrigation, um, and about pesticides. Now you might think, well, why should we be reading Hitler on pesticides? The reason is that Hitler's view about science is not, I think, what it's usually made out to be, and certainly not what we might think if we read Horkheimer and Adorno and, and go for that whole Enlightenment story. Um, Hitler's, Hitler's argument is that, sure, you know, there are these technologies, but they can't possibly save us from the necessity of endless competition for, lendless, for, for limited resources. Uh, and if you think that they can, says Hitler, then you have fallen for a Jewish swindle. So the idea that science is a universal, right, as opposed to a particular, uh, is for Hitler one more Jewish lie. It's not that Hitler doesn't believe in science. He believes that Germans will have better science than other people, just like they'll have better states um, or better hygiene or better armies. It's not that he doesn't believe in science. It's that he thinks that science is one more particularity. If you think that science can save us all and thereby prevents the, or removes the need for a particular struggle of race against race, then, says Hitler, you've fallen for a Jewish swindle. So Hitler thinks that, we, that, that science would be one more illusion that prevents us from falling into the struggle that we might otherwise, that we, that we should be falling into. Okay, so where will this struggle take place? Now this idea, now, now we move from um, ecology to, 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 to geopolitics or ecology to what Hitler calls Lebensraum or from ecology to history. Hitler looks at the world and says, uh, maritime empires are no longer possible. But we know that land empires are possible. We know that frontier empires are possible because the United States of America has shown us how it's done. So with the help of slave labor, um, you can conquer a continent and exterminate the native peoples. This is the lesson that Hitler draws from the United States of America. He looks upon Americans as being chiefly Scandinavians and Germans, and he sees this as the kind of thing that Scandinavians and Germans can do and bemoans the fact that some of the best, he concludes that some of the best Scandinavians and Germans have been lost and they've shown that they're the best precisely because of what they were able to do on the North American continent. I should say North America because Canada is included in this as well, not just the U.S. So, um, what, so, 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 so this means that Hitler looks um, at, the, at the U.S. as a model for what can be done in Eurasia. Starting from Germany, you can push east and create, and create a frontier empire um, in which Germans will achieve, will achieve Lebensraum. Now, this Lebensraum business is also, is also very important because it means a couple of things, and it means a couple of things together, which are politically significant. The combination is very significant. On the one hand, Lebensraum, as I'm sure everyone knows, um, is, is an analogy taken from, um, taken from a Darwinian struggle, right? That every species has its own ecological, we would say, niche, right? Biotope. Like every, every, every species has its own place. That's called Lebensraum. The German race, because it's like a species, needs to have its own space. That space should be bigger, right? Um, and if you think about it that way, Lebensraum means literally a struggle for survival. It's a struggle for the physical resources that your group needs to survive. But... There's also a second meaning of Lebensraum, which also refers back to the United States and which is more apparent in the second book than, than in the first. It's easy to remember the title of Hitler's second book because it's Hitler's second book. Um, so in the, in the second, in the, and you know the title of his first one, so now you've got it. Um, so it, the, in, in the second book, more than the first, he emphasizes that what he means by Lebensraum and what he means by struggle is not necessarily the struggle for physical survival, but the struggle not to have a lower standard of living than anyone else. 
And here again, he refers to America and talks about how German housewives, when they're thinking about how they live, um, are not thinking, do we have enough calories? They're thinking, are we doing as well as the Americans? And then he says something which sounds very much from like French theory of the 60s or 70s. He says, thanks to modern technology, such as the radio, it's no longer our own personal experience, which sets our expectations for life. It's what, it's what we imagine that others have. And, and, and what follows from this is that Lebensraum, in addition to meaning physical survival, also means lifestyle, right? It means living as well as everybody else or, or slightly better. And here again, America is the marker, as it were, both objectively and subjectively. America is what you can't fall behind. You have to do as well as the Americans because the Americans are the ones who have, who cl- almost clearly have, have the future. So um, from, and so you see how this works together politically because on the one hand, you can arouse emotions having to do with survival while what people are really fighting for um, is, um, you know, is the is is the good bedectatish, right? Um, you, you can amount, you can arouse these emotions which are very violent, even though in some sense what's really going on is that you're struggling for for standard of living, and people can disguise for themselves the fact that it's about standard of living by imagining this about survival. I would, I would submit that's a form of politics or a form of thinking about the world and its economic organization, which is not entirely foreign to the way we live now. All right, Um, so in practice, what Hitler thinks is that the territory that's going to be conquered is the territory of Ukraine. Ukraine is the black earth of the title of the book. Ukraine is the most fertile soil in Europe. And so the notion is that if we can physically, if we can physically conquer this territory, this is what's going to change, change Germany qualitatively. Um, this is what's this is what's going to this is what's going to allow Lebensraum actually to be conquered and to and to be realized. And the important thing about this as a war aim, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make this point very simply because it's so crucial to the history of the Holocaust. If it's not for this war aim, the Holocaust would not have been possible because the war aim to get German force into Ukraine is what makes it is what makes it um, the case that German force is where Jews live. There aren't that many Jews in Germany. There aren't that many Jews in France and other places where Hitler fought his incidental wars. It was in, it was in the East where Jews actually lived. There, there are more Jews in individual Polish cities than there are in Germany, right? Um, there are more Jews in individual Polish cities than there were in Palestine at the time. This is where Jews actually lived in the former Pole of, Pole of Settlement, in the Western Soviet Union and the Republic of Poland, also in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, in Lithuania in considerable numbers. And so the war aim of going East is one of the necessary conditions of the Holocaust. Without the idea of Lebensraum and without its specific geography, there could not have been a Holocaust because there wouldn't have been a reason to, there wouldn't have been a reason to, to fight the war there. There's also, of course, the reason why Hitler thinks the war is winnable, which is that, remember, Jews are responsible for all ideas of reciprocity, um, not only communism, but including communism. And within this worldview, the Soviet Union is a Jewish state um, run by Jews, where Jews exploit the Slavs. And so, and Jews, of course, only compete mentally, right? For Hitler, this is what's perverted about the Jews. They compete mentally by putting ideas in our minds, but they won't compete physically. So the moment that you begin an actual war, you're breaking through their illusions and their state, as he sees it, the Soviet Union, will immediately collapse. The Slavs, no matter how bad you treat them, are going to be grateful because you're, be, you're going to be liberating them from Jewish rule and their bounty will automatically become yours. Hence the very unrealistic expectations about what was going to happen when, the, when Germany and its allies invade the Soviet Union in the summer 
in the summer of 1941. And then, of course, and now I'm following um, a, a very strong tradition in German historiography, uh, which begins with Christian Gerlach um, and which has been refined, I think, uh, to a point which I think will be hard to surpass by Christoph Dieckmann in his book about his, his, his two magnificent volumes about Germany and Lithuania. From that point, the war really does start to become something like a war for subsistence. It matters a great deal um, when the Soviet Union doesn't fall and when it doesn't yield bounty, which it never does. The Germans get more food from Belgium than they do from Ukraine. Um, so it matters when the war doesn't go the way they expect, when the Soviet Union doesn't collapse in 10 weeks. Um, it matters a great deal then that the German soldiers are ordered in the middle of September to feed themselves from the land. Um, this puts other people in a worse position. It matters a great deal that, for anti-Semitic reasons, Jews are at the bottom of the list of those who are to receive food, which means it becomes plausible, not just in Pols 9 later on, but in Lithuania very early, to say it would make more sense to kill these people than to let them starve over the course of, of, of the winter. In other words, the, the ecological vision of how the world is supposed to work, in some sense, comes closer to describing the way the world actually is once, once the Germans invade the Soviet Union. And this, this logic is not the only logic, of course, um, but it is nevertheless an important logic. I'll give you just a few more examples. Um, one, one telling one, which all German specialists will know, is the decision to liquidate the, the, the Warsaw Ghetto in 1942. The calculation that Himmler makes is that we are getting less from working Jews than we would get from the food that we need to feed them. In other words, the calories are worth, are worth more than the Jews. Now, um, before you think, well, that's just an economic calculation, I want to put in your mind the idea that that's just an economic calculation is a horrifying thought. Because if it's just an economic calculation, that means we've already accepted that the life of the people in question is not part of the calculation at all, which was the case. Once you decide that the people in question are going to be removed from the earth one way or the other, then it is just an economic calculation. Then you just think, is their labor worth more than, their, than the calories we're giving them? And if the answer is no at a certain point, you kill them. Um, and and that's, that's the ratchet upon which the killing proceeds. When the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising ha happens in, in the spring of 1943, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in which this man Feldshu takes, takes part, um, what, oh, Another little just detail. When, when Warsaw Jews are drawn to the, the Umschlagplatz, at the beginning, the posters that are put up in the ghetto say, come to the Umschlagplatz, there's bread and marmalade. And you would think, looking at it from our comfortable point of view, how could they possibly have believed that or fallen for that? And the answer, of course, is that if you drive people to desperation um, by way of hunger, if you can create a condition which really is a struggle for survival, then people will be drawn by the promise of bread and marmalade, even if they have every reason to think that, that it's false. That's what that world is like. So that's the summer of 42. The spring of 1943, um, the, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising takes place. This man Feldshu is taking part on the revisionist side. Then there's also a coalition of left-wing and center parties who are fighting. Uh, the German police commander who's meant to put it down is a man called Jürgen Stroop. When Stroop is asked later in prison what he was thinking about when his men were applying those flamethrowers to those, to those bunkers, um, when Feldshu was saying we were living in the earth, what was Stroop thinking about? By Stroop's, by Stroop's account, he was, think, he, was, he was thinking of the milk and honey of Ukraine the milk and honey of Ukraine. In other words, at a time when we would be 
we would put all the emphasis and completely understandably on exactly what was happening to the to, to Warsaw and its Jews, the destruction of the, the, the largest Jewish um, city in, in Europe, um, destruction of the Jews of that city, destruction of the city itself. But what Strolp is thinking about is precisely this ecology. He's thinking about Ukraine. In his mind, the rationalization for what's happening here is that vision there still. This is 1943 of, of, that, of, that, front, of that frontier of that frontier empire. Okay, so that's ecology. Now let's take a moment and, and, think, about, and think about the state, and then, and then we can discuss. For the state, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a, a, a different story of a different, a, a different Jew. It takes a bit longer. Um, it's not poetry, it's prose. Her name is Irena Lipschitz, and she is a young woman, a Polish-speaking Jew from, from Warsaw, who, whose, whose fate in the Holocaust, uh, at least till the very last thing we're going to talk about, is extremely typical and therefore revealing. So she lives in the she lives in, in Warsaw. This is we're, we're going back to 1939 now. So she lives in Warsaw, which is the most important Jewish city in Europe. When Germany invades on the first of September 1939, she does what about a quarter of a million Jews in Poland do, which is she flees to the east. What these people think they're doing is they think they're fleeing to eastern Poland. Um, and they go and they're received by local Jewish communities. People try to find places for them um, on couches or in attics. And then on September 17th, the Soviet Union invades Poland from the other side, which makes of this quarter of a million um, or so Jews people who are now under Soviet power as the Soviet Union joins its German ally in, in invading Poland. So she's so Irena is in this little tiny place called Wisotsk, which is close to the Polesian marshes. She's working. She has she she makes new friends. They 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 try to look out for her. That's what she's doing in June of 1941 when the Germans displace the Soviets. And and here we have we have something which is tricky but is very important to remember, which is when Germany invades the Soviet Union, what is it actually invading or where does the invasion start? It doesn't start with the borders of the Soviet Union in 1939. It starts with the borders of the Soviet Union in 1941, which means it starts with territories which until very recently had been Poland or a little bit further north had been the Baltic states. The Baltic states are only destroyed in 1940. So we're looking at the invasion, the German invasion happens roughly a year after the Soviet occupation and annexation of, of, of the Baltic states. So, so the Germans come in June of 1941. Um, in September of 1942, Arena is with the local Jews as they are being rounded up um, and taken to pits to be shot by, it seems like, a few Germans and a larger group of locals, which is completely typical of the time and place. Arena runs. She, she runs into the marshes, um, and she tries to survive by eating berries and by, and by eating mushrooms. But she's a city girl. This is not the kind of thing which is going to last for very long. She decides that what she's going to do is stand out on a road, put out her hand and ask someone for help. So that's what she does. Um, she goes out to a track. She puts out her hand. Um, she sees someone over the horizon. He gets closer. It's, it's one man, um, and he's carrying a double-barreled shotgun over his shoulder. She asks him for help. Now, the thing about this story, which may seem colorful, is that it includes all of the basic elements of how the Holocaust happened, or at least how the Holocaust started. Irena represents the largest group of Jews who are killed in the Holocaust, Polish Jews. She is in, literally physically in, the place where the Holocaust starts, the Polesian marshes, which is where Himmler gives an order in July of 1941 for the Waffen-SS for the first time to kill women and children, which is as good a, a moment as any to date the beginning 
of, of the Holocaust. Um, the weapon that she sees is the weapon which kills um, almost all of the Jews who die in the Holocaust in, in 1941 and roughly, and roughly half of them for the rest of the Holocaust. Um, these things are all completely normal. But what we don't see in this picture are things that we might expect to see. Like we don't see nations, for one thing. Irena is a Polish-speaking Jew who's befriended by Yiddish-speaking Jews in a part of the world where people speak dialects, which you can say are Belarusian if you're Belarusian, you can say are Ukrainian if you're Ukrainian. It's also famously the part of the world where the Polish census, the last one taken, identified a very high number of people who referred to themselves as um, Tuteishi, or they would have said Tuteshni, from here, right? This is, that's what the Polesian marshes were. They were famously the place where nationality was least developed. So it's very hard to find nations, which is important for us because when we do the Holocaust, we do it with nations. We do a German nation, we do a Jewish nation, and then sometimes we might toss in another nation, right? There might be the Holocaust in France, and then we ask about the French or the Holocaust in Bohemia. We ask about the Czechs. Um, we, we count on that. We fall back on that. We fall back on national paradigms, and I would suggest we also fall back very heavily on national stereotypes, which brings me to the Germans. There aren't any Germans in this picture either. At least they're not physically present at the moment where, where the story ends. And certainly where we don't, what we don't have is we don't have some kind of bureaucratic machine, right? We don't have, some, we don't have something which is... Um, which is, which is taking her papers or classifying her or moving her through this cycle, which in different ways Hannah Arendt or, or Zygmunt Bauman describe where you're first dehumanized and then you're concentrated and then finally you're killed. That's not happening here as it did not in general happen in the Holocaust as a whole. So we're far away from some of our images, but we're very close to the typical experience of a Jew in the Holocaust. And we're very close to a couple of other things which I think are very interesting. One thing is we're very close to the to Hitler's fantasy in pages one and two of Mein Kampf about what the world is like. She, this Jew is quite literally trying to survive by scratching mushrooms and berries out of the forest. This is what Hitler thought should be happening, right? This is what Hitler, this is what Hitler expected. Uh, and we're also close to something else, which is the consensus of scholarship on how genocide happens. So um, if, you, if we take a step away from the Holocaust and take a, step, take a step away from history and look at what the social scientists have been doing with the concepts of ethnic cleansing and genocide for the last 25 years, the consensus, and there have now been not just studies but studies of studies on this, the consensus is that genocide and ethnic cleansing take place in conditions of state failure, of civil war, of political chaos, political function, political dysfunction. Um, that the, the, stronger associ the strong association is not authoritarian state kills its people. The strong association is rather states fall apart and that creates the condition for genocide. And consider where we are. We're in a place where the Polish state was destroyed by the Soviet state and then the Soviet state was destroyed by the German state in the course of about two years. In that sense, it's typical. Now, when confronted with social scientific generalizations that are backed by huge amounts of data and a generation of consideration, historians generally have a response. And historical response, the response of colleagues, is to say, I know one counterexample. Right? Um, that's what, and, and, and this is interesting because historians do know counterexamples. We know examples of places where there was mass killing where the state didn't fall apart. Cambodia, People's Republic of China, Soviet Union... And what's, but what's interesting about those examples, those historical examples, is that in all three cases, you're dealing with a very specific kind of state. You're dealing with a party state. 
where the, the main relationship between the individual and the, and the polity was not through citizenship, but which, but which was through a party which was meant to manage history and which could declare states of emergency. Now, why am I dwelling on, on that? Because if we look at the, if we, if we just, for, if we bracket the Holocaust for just a moment and we consider those two other trends of trying to explain mass killing, we actually see, I think, what was in fact unique about Nazi Germany. What was unique about Nazi Germany from a scholarly point of view is that it brings together both of the major scholarly traditions of explaining mass killing. On the one hand, Germany was a state that destroyed other states. And it was in the realm where Germany destroyed other states that the Holocaust took place. On the other hand, Germany was a party state, and the ideology of that party was precisely that zones of anarchy should be created where racial struggle will happen. So Nazi Germany is special, but it's special not in a way which has to throw us away from all the things we think we understand about mass killing, but rather in a way which confirms both of the major arguments about mass killing and in fact brings them together. So the way that I would understand the traditional narration of the Nazi rise to power, which I, you know, I, I will just assume that the landmarks are familiar to you. Hitler takes power in 33. Um, there, there are Nuremberg laws. There's, there's, Aryan, there's Aryanization. Um, the, there, there's the creation of concentration camps. The way that I would understand all of that is not as the thing in itself, because that does not cause the Holocaust, nor in my view could it have caused the Holocaust. I mean, for the very simple reason that there aren't very many Jews in Germany, but making the test a little bit higher, that apparatus doesn't kill the Jews of Germany. It gets many of them to flee, but it doesn't kill Jews in Germany, not until it goes abroad, creates stateless zones, and then sends those German Jews to Riga or to Minsk or to Wuj or to other places where the German army and SS has already wiped the slate, as they like to put it, clean. Right? So that story from 33 to 39 cannot be the thing in and of itself. I think it has to be understood in a different way. That story of 33 to 39 is the creation of the potential to destroy other states. That's what that is. What is the SS? The, S, the SS in the 30s are the guards in the concentration camps. What's a concentration camp? Um, ask an American lawyer. A concentration camp is a place where the law does not apply. That's what a concentration camp is. And that's why the SS are the guards, because statelessness is their line of work. When the SS become de facto in charge of the occupation in the East, what that means is, um, not metaphorically now, this is like one big concentration camp. Germany does not acknowledge that the Polish state exists. Germany does not acknowledge that the Polish state has ever existed. Germany applies to Poland the law that European empires, if law is the right word, traditionally apply to colonies, which is to say, this is not a state whose existence we recognize, this is an unknown territory inhabited by unclassified peoples. And therefore, we may do as we wish. This is very significant. In practice, when the Germans come into Poland, they don't declare an occupation zone. They start by calling it the general government of occupied Poland, then very quickly correct themselves, because occupation implies that you're occupying something. And their own doctrine was that there was nothing there to be occupied. Hence, the odd term general government stands alone. And then in the lower level, what they do is they immediately declare the Polish civil code null and void. They declare that Polish property rights 
don't apply, which of course then sets off the, 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 the chain of events that you would expect in the Polish countryside. If you take Jews, um, because they have no civil rights, I'm going to emphasize this, into ghettos, and then no one has any property rights, what's going to happen to their property? And, how are, and are people going to want those Jews to come back? Those questions are very easy to answer. So what I think, that, what, what I think the best way to understand 33 to 39 is, is as an accumulation of potential, of ideological but also of destructive potential, to destroy other states. And then if we run through the history of the Holocaust, we see how this confirms with, as German power goes beyond Germany. So individual things like Anschluss or Munich which usually fall into the category of national history and are not generally uh, attended to at least a great length in the history of the Holocaust take on new significance because Anschluss no longer becomes an Austrian trauma or an Austrian moment of joy or an Austrian thing to consider. Anschluss becomes the moment when all Austrians lose citizenship. That's what Anschluss means, right? Um, Anschluss is the moment where Austria for a moment in March of 38 ceases to exist. Everything floats free. It's a laboratory where you find out how people behave when all of a sudden Jewish citizens stop being Jewish citizens of Austria because there is no Austria. The symbolic politics, which we all know, the Jews scrubbing the streets, mean this. The Jews aren't just scrubbing the streets to be humiliated. That's how we think about it because we think we like because we're semiotic. But they're actually scrubbing from the streets something with deep political meaning. They're scrubbing the word Österreich from the streets because there was going to be a referendum about the continuation of the Austrian state. When a Jew scrubs Österreich from the streets, the Jew is being associated with the now defunct Austrian state, right? And now that the Austrian state is defunct, the Jew is going to be defunct as well. The same, this, the, the same argument then escalates as the Germans destroy other states. What happens in Czechoslovakia? Why are the Slovak Jews the first ones sent to Auschwitz in large numbers? Because if you destroy the Czechoslovak state, as Germany does in March 1939, there is a moment when all of the citizens float free. You then can write a new constitution in which Jews are second-class citizens and don't have property rights. When they have no property rights, very soon, for the Slovak government, you can say, why do we have all these immiserated Jews? Shouldn't we be sending them somewhere? And then you can negotiate with the Germans to send them to Auschwitz, which is why the Jews are the first ones to go, the Jews from Slovakia are the first ones to go in large numbers to Auschwitz. As Jews, there are other people there already. They're the first large Jewish group to go to, Trent, to Auschwitz. Or, to be more obscure, why are the Jews of the extreme east of Czechoslovakia the first ones to be shot um, in, in the first major mass killing in the Holocaust at Kamianitz Podilski in August of 1941 for the same reason? The extreme east of Czechoslovakia is given to Hungary. The Jews on that territory um, are not made second-class citizens. In general, they're allowed to float free without citizenship at all. Then, when Germany invades the Soviet Union in 1941, the Hungarian government takes advantage of the opportunity and expels these stateless, quote-unquote, refugees into the Soviet Union in the path of the Germans. These people who do not have citizenship at all because their state has been destroyed are then rounded up at Kamianitz Pildilski along with local Jews at the end of August 1941, and they're shot. Roughly 23,600 Jews are shot. So the statelessness, the destruction of Czechoslovakia leads integrally to this, and this was the first massacre, not only in the Holocaust, but in the history of the world on this scale by shooting. So this, this is a turning point. This showed, this showed what could be done. So as we move through the story of the Germans destroying states, we're also moving through the story of the escalation of the Holocaust. Um, I've, already, I've already talked about Poland. So what I'll say about Poland is that it's very striking that 
Um, destroying Poland means that you can put Jews in ghettos, but even there, you can't kill them in large numbers until Germany invades the Soviet Union. Once Germany invades the Soviet Union, it learns that it can shoot Jews in stateless zones close to where they live. And then the question arises again, what do we do with these Jews in the ghettos? Um, and, and that's when we get to Himmler in, in, 1940, in 1942. I'm also going to say, but only briefly, because I don't want to take all the time, that the, the statelessness is not just some abstraction, right? The statelessness is a change in politics which affects how people live everyday lives. I've given the example of property rights. Um, I'll, give, I'll give another example, which is double collaboration. When the Soviets invade the Baltic states or, or, or take and occupy, annex the Baltic states in 1940, there is um, very large-scale local collaboration. The nature of Soviet rule is that you, you involve a very large percentage of the population. When the Germans invade the Baltic states, um, in, or the, when they invade what had become the Soviet Baltic republics in 1941, they, get, they elicit massive collaboration precisely from people who had worn uniforms under Soviet rule. Why? Why? I mean, if you were in that situation, the explanation is obvious. The only way that you can, as it were, prove that you weren't to collaborate with the first regime is to collaborate with the second. Um, and this, this very nice, simple bit of human nature in dark times is understood by the invaders themselves. Um, so the Germans or their Latvian and Lithuanian language-speaking collaborators actually say, if you have collaborated with the Soviets, you can undo it by killing Jews. Now, I don't say that as an excuse. I say it as a description of a certain kind of, of politics, which is only present when the state is destroyed, or in this case, destroyed twice. I think it's, it's telling, um, and we can talk about it more, but it's very telling that the Holocaust only takes place on zones where the state has been destroyed, and it starts in the zone, the very precise zone, where the state was destroyed twice. There and, and nowhere else. There, there and, no one, and nowhere else. If we turn the description around and ask, where can Jews survive? The answer is where they have citizenship. If you have citizenship in a country that the Germans recognize as a state, they will not kill you. If you're a British or an American Jew and you find yourself in Berlin, you're not going to be killed. You're a citizen of Great Britain. They will only, if you're a citizen of Romania, which carries out its own policy of the mass murder of Jews and kills about 300,000 of them, but if it's, if it's in a month where, let's, after mid-42, after October 42, if the Romanians are again recognizing Jews as their own citizens, which they do after the fall of 42, and you are a Romanian Jew who lived in France and you got sent to Drancy, which is the, the transit camp for Auschwitz from France, if you're there, the Germans will not take you and kill you. They will not take you because the Romanian government has currently recognized you as a Romanian citizen. Right? Or look at other examples that are familiar. Bulgaria. There's a nice story about how the Bulgarians saved their Jews, which is, I mean, there's so many qualifications one has to offer, but the most important is that Bulgarian Jews who were citizens of Bulgaria before the war generally did survive. Although they were kicked out of the capital and other things happened to them, they generally did survive. But in the territory which Bulgaria gained as a result of the Second World War, there they took all the Jews and sent them to Auschwitz. And we have the telegram from Eichmann, where he writes, he writes to the Bulgarian government and says, you haven't given them citizenship, have you? And the response back is, no, we haven't given them citizenship. Okay, then please, right, please deport. So the, con the connection is very clear. I'll give you one more dramatic example, which is Denmark. 
Denmark also has a nice story about how the Danes saved the Jews. And of course, that story is true. Although, again, there are many, there, there are some questions to be asked here. Um, you know, when, when Werner Best says that the Jewish question has been resolved by all the Danish Jews going to Sweden, it wasn't, all, it wasn't only Germans who saw it that way. Let's put it that way. But the thing about Denmark that I want to flag here is that the Jews who they saved were Danes, Danish Jews who had Danish citizenship. If you, if you were just a Jew, but you didn't have Danish citizenship, they didn't save you. They sent you back to Germany. Every single one from 1934, they sent back to Germany, right? And, or to put it a different way, um, when uh, the, the, the Danes looked after their Jews, even, even when those Jews were in, German, were in German camps, it was a question of citizenship. But the, the, the point I wanted to make, though, was to compare Denmark to Estonia. In Denmark, 99% of the citizens, not the Jews, right, but the citizens who are Jews survive. In Estonia, about 99% are killed, which is a radical difference to have to explain. And what I want to suggest is that the conventional things that we would fall back on, like the nation, simply cannot do the work here. There's no reason to think that the Estonian nation or the Danish nation up until 1939 had any particularly different attitude towards towards Jews. There's no particular reason, for example, to think that Danes were less anti-Semitic than Estonians were. If anything, it's on the contrary. So if we're going to explain a radical variation, 99% to 1%, we need another, we need another factor. And for me, that factor is that Denmark was just, that Denmark was experienced the gentlest of the Nazi occupations. Um, and Estonia experienced the most drastic possible combination, which is a complete destruction by the Soviet state, destruction of the entire political apparatus, murder and deportation of essentially the entire political class, criminalization of taking part in the Estonian state at any point after Estonian independence, and so on and so forth, deportation of a serious part of the population, and then a German occupation regime, which was based in rooting up the Soviet occupation apparatus in essentially, in essentially parallel form. Or, okay, I'll give you one more example, then I promise I stop. The Polish Jews in France. In the, in the Holocaust in France, more Polish Jews died than French Jews. Not in relative terms, in absolute terms. Polish anti-Semitism was a real thing in the world, and still is. But you can't explain why more Polish Jews and French Jews die in France with Polish anti-Semitism. The explanation is that those Polish Jews did not have a state and the interesting thing is they understood this at the time as their problem. When the Polish state was destroyed in 1930, in September, after September 1st, what, what, did, what did Polish Jews living in Paris do? They immediately went to the Soviet consulate to try to get papers, right? Because they had a sense. I mean, the saying in, among Poles and Jews in the Second World War was passport is what keeps body and soul together. They had an intuition about this, which we've lost. They eventually, they, they immediately went to the Soviet consulate to try to get papers. Not because they loved the Soviet Union, but because they wanted to have papers. And they very often got them. But then, of course, when Germany invades the Soviet Union in 1941, those papers no longer count because now Germany doesn't recognize the Soviet Union as a state. So those Polish Jews in Paris don't have papers. And it's very easy. So when they're... When they're drawn up um, and taken to Drancy, they're all sent, and, 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 and they all die. Okay, which leads me to the end of the story about Irena, um, and, and, and then I, I should leave some time for questions. So Irena Lipschitz, she puts out her hand, she asks for help, um, and, uh, and miraculously, the man walking down the path who meets her, meets her eye, and without batting an eye, that's her phrase, agrees to help. He helps her. And as as um, as Irena spends a few months with this with this with this man, she learns some things about him. She learns that he's a bootlegger, uh, that he's a smuggler, 
um, and that he's a kind of he's a kind of anarchist. Under Poland, he had he had hidden communists because the Communist Party was banned in Poland. Under Soviet rule, um, he had hidden Poles because so many Poles, especially educated Poles in the political apparatus, were de- were deported um, to the Gulag under Soviet rule. And then when the Germans came, he had helped Jews. And for him, from his point of view, it was all the same thing. That was his particular political philosophy. Um, so, so Edena records records all of this. I have, a, I have a friend who's a philosopher at Alabama who reads my books, and he generally just corrects the he just generally corrects the English. But in, in this particular case, on the margin, when I got to the description of this bootlegger, he wrote, "I want to party with this guy," <laughs> um, which is the feeling I think that the description elicits in all of us. Like, what a good person! What an interesting person! Wouldn't we be like that in that situation? But the point, of this, the point of this lecture is that there's a reason why people like that are exceptional. In general, the ecological consideration or the consideration of the destruction of normal political order meant that people did not behave like that. It was the very exceptional person who, despite changes in what I'm calling ecology, or despite the void that replaced politics, behaved, behaved like that. Which is why, um, this really will be my last remark, which is why when I think about rescue, um, I think this is very important for us, I'm now moving from history into politics and ethics a little bit, but you'll follow me, that it's very important when we think about rescue not to adopt the Hollywood scenario of the one good person who at the end saves the day. Because by the time you get to the end, it's already too late. Right? By the time this man is helping Irena, um, many, many Jews are, have already been killed, but also because in general one person can't save the day. What The lesson, I think, of the causes of the Holocaust, I mean, of course it's the case, as all the Holocaust museums say, and I help them say it when, when we talk about it, of course it's true that the individual attitude of the individual person matters an awful lot at crucial moments. Um, I would dare say at moments like the ones we're in now. But you get past those moments um, into places where there are much larger forces at stake, these ecological or these, anti, or these anti-political forces, which seems to me that when we think about rescue or the political um, consequences of rescue, the political mean of rescue, the political mean of rescue would involve trying to prevent us getting into situations that are comparable to this in, in the first place. I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Directly after his talk, Professor Snyder took questions from the audience. The Q&A was chaired by Professor Robert Gerwart, head of the School of History at University College Dublin. Um, so I think that your argument about um, zones of limited statehood, um, I found it very convincing. Um, my only issue with it is that, on the one hand, as you already said, there is the perpetrating state, of course, is a highly functioning state. Um, perhaps the most functioning state in a strange way um, in Western Europe at the time uh, with a, a very efficient um, administration which is re-geared towards one purpose only in this case. Um, and that bizarrely what the Germans do after this brief period of anarchy 1941 in particular, um, what they're trying to do in a perverted way is to recreate order. Uh, That's how I read the construction of designated uh, extermination camps uh, as an attempt to end, for various reasons, primarily because they are concerned about the mental health of the perpetrators, to construct an order which will allow them to 
crudely phrased, finish the job in an orderly way. Yeah. Um, so it's partly about zones of limited statehood, but also about sort of perverted islands of order mm -hmm. uh, within these areas. Um, I also find the argument generally very convincing in relation to, uh, as you describe, Ukraine-Poland in particular, um, the completely uh, shattered states. Um, but in the case of, for example, Austria uh, or the Czech lands, Bohemia and Moravia, of course, from the Nazis' perspective, is what they're doing is, is they are destroying an artificial, artificial states which were created in 1918. So they are restoring proper legitimacy and statehood by incorporating these territories mm -hmm. into what they see as the, the greater German Reich. So sure. there are zones of statelessness and also of, of reborn orders. I think, I think the idea of some kind of order or any sort of order, because I'm sure you can see that the, you know, the, the notion of, of Treblinka as order is a very special notion of order. I mean, it just it means that rather than having um, rather than having dozens of large shooting pits, you have essentially a rail station where, for the first several weeks, people are shot and as they come out of the trains because they haven't gotten the gassing ap operation figured out. And then after that, people are gassed en masse. I mean, that, that may be order in the very restrictive sense that, as you say, it's, it's um, keeping psychological problems down among German perpetrators. But from any other point of view, I think that's a very, it's a very restrictive idea of, of, of order. And I don't think it clashes with the point that I'm trying to make about um, citizenship and the state because by the time we get to by the time we get to this moment by the time we get to, to 19 to 1942 and the experience the experiments with Belgets and Helmno and so on the Holocaust has already happened it's already underway and and what we're trying to do is explain how a Holocaust can happen that the, the, this order I would define as as a technical order rather than as rather than as a as 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 a political as a political order, although I, I, I quite I quite take your point about the difference. Now, and I mean the, the chronology is very important because even the Jews who are going to be killed in these orderly places, you know, just to take the word for a moment, are only going to be Jews who come from zones where political disorder has already been created. Right. So Jews are only going to be killed in Treblinka if um, if there is a reason to think of them as not having citizenship, which is an interior act, right? So, so I, I, I take the point that the, the technique has been changed. The way my argument would work would be to stress that what we have to explain is how you get to the moment where the Germans realize that this is possible. And that has everything to do, I think, with, 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 with this anti-politics, with this, with this creation of these zones. And then you have, I think, the secondary consideration, you know, that Himmler himself talks about, of, of, of not putting Germans under, 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 too much, under too much stress. On the second point about Austria and Czechoslovakia, the, the first thing I would stress here again, I mean, you're, you're, you're quite right, but the first thing I would stress here again would be the, the chronology. And one of the banal arguments I'm trying to make in this book is that if you go through the chronology of the Holocaust, the, some of the things that have to be in the chronology are precisely the destruction of Austria and the destruction of Czechoslovakia and also the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Um, I mean, a, a little... A little bookshelf game you can play if you have a big bookshelf with books on the Holocaust is go back home and see how many of them have the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in the index at all, right? Um, and it seems like even if one doesn't buy my particular argument, 
a moment where Germany allies with the Soviet Union and starts a Second World War would be a moment that ought to be indexed. And if you think there's any plausibility to the idea, you know, as, 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 as Hannah Arendt and many others have thought, if you think there's any plausibility to the idea that citizenship has something to do with this, an action, the molotov rimmentrop Pact, which led to tens of millions of people losing citizenship de facto, ought to be, ought to be indexed, right? So one of the things I'm trying to push into the story is the chronology which includes the other countries, which is why in, in Black Earth I have what, you know, I have this, I have what seems, it's interesting, it seems to German historians to be a whole lot of stuff in the middle about these irrelevant countries, basically. Because the way that the way the narration usually goes is that you have a whole lot of beautiful detail about Germany, because as we know, Germany is a, a very interesting country and we know the language. So you have a whole lot of beautiful detail about Germany, and then you get to this thing called the Holocaust. And, 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 and so, you know, along the lines of what you're saying, what I'm trying to do is, is just in, like, pause and investigate what Austria means and what Czechoslovakia means and what Poland means. If, if, um, you know, if from the German point of view, as you say, all that's happening is that illegitimate creations are being um, re- destroyed and restor- restored to Germany, okay, but what does it mean from the Jewish point of view? And from the Jewish point of view, what it means is the loss of citizenship and the consequences which, which, which follow from that. So it's, if, we, if we look at these, it's, it's a simple move, but if we look at these countries before they're destroyed, we have a sense of what it means for them to be destroyed. And, it's, and, and, and interestingly, it's often the Jewish, the Jewish sources which make this point. Um, in Austria, the Jews make this point. Um, but they also make this point, the point about double collaboration that I made earlier, that is extractable mostly from the Jewish sources because the Germans almost never like to admit, oh, we got outwitted by locals, right? That's like a German telegram that one rarely reads. We got outwitted by the Slavic untermension, which is what double collaboration is. It's local people reacting. I'm not praising this morally, but they're reacting intelligently to the reality of the German presence immediately collaborating with the Germans and then saying the Jews were the collaborators is the best way to hide your own collaboration because you're playing to the German weakness because that's what the Germans think is true. The Germans come in and say the Jews are communists, right? And you say, oh yes, of course the Jews are communists. It wasn't me who was a militia man, even though it was. And therefore you have lots of Ukrainians and Belarusians who were deporting Poles and then executing Jews. And who notices that and writes it down? The Jews. Right? So the Jews leave these sources which say, isn't it funny how my neighbor collaborated with the Soviets and then blamed me for it? And from that, we then can identify this phenomenon, which again, like the, the, Germans, the Germans aren't going to see it, but sometimes what the Germans don't see is, is really important. Um, and then with Austria and Czechoslovakia, in um, addition to the chronology and the sources, there's also the question which, um, which I ask at the beginning of the, the very beginning of the book, which is, okay, given what happens in Austria, fine. Austria then disappears, like there's a, and usually when we read up the Holocaust, there's a moment where we talk about Austria and then it disappears. But why are the Jews killed in a suburb of Minsk? Why are the Austrian Jews killed in a suburb of Minsk? I mean, if we, if we're, if, if we think that the whole story is, you know, the Germans and the anti-Semitism and so on, why weren't they killed in Vienna? Or, I mean, it's horrible enough that a few hundred of them were, but why were, why were the Jews of Austria en masse shot in a place that none of them had ever heard of, Mali Trostinets, outside of Minsk? And the answer is, because only when the Germans go into the Soviet Union and destroy the state do they create the conditions where they can kill, as it were, their own Jews. So, thank you. Floor is open. I think your hand went up first. <laughs> well, I have two rather different quest- questions. And one, of course, I mean, I understand that the story that I would have heard of the Holocaust in the 60s and 70s would have been for people from Western Europe. But there's the Dutch. 
who lose their own Jews uh, in a society that had been uh, one of the most hospitable going back into the, the 17th century in large numbers, and not just the Anna Franks who arrived in Germany. Uh, and the other is uh, somebody who works on, uh, on Jews in the 1930s, the uh, visceral fear you get already in letters in 33, and certainly after Kristallnacht, people who are fleeing and people who are then going to every possible length they can to get their families out after Kristallnacht. That there is, although you do have to deport people outside your country to kill them in large numbers, there are people in 33, 34, 35, 36 who are... Uh, who are terrified for their lives and feel certain that if they stay a few more weeks, and these are not people who are communists who have any left-wing associations, uh, and they're going in large numbers when they can or sending their children sure. when they can. Sure. sure, sure. And that's all very significant, but if, if we, I'm going to start from the second question. If we stop, the, if we stop in 1939 and pretend we don't know what happens next, um, or if you want to like run into a different counterfactual, if the assassination attempt on Hitler in November 39 succeeds, as it came within a hairbreadth of doing, that those fears would not have seemed so different from the fears of Jews in Poland who were undergoing um, also massive pogroms in 38 and 39. They would not have seemed so different from the fears of Jews in Romania who were, who were fleeing. Also not so different from the fears of Jews in, in the Soviet Union, um, many more Jews were killed in the Soviet Union in the 30s, um, actually by orders of magnitude, than in any of these other countries, not as Jews, but as part of the terror. And not so much exile, whereas half the German community leaves because they're... Right, they're but scared. it's a small community, right? And you're talking about a very small community of Jews. Um, the, and many more Polish Jews would have gone, but nobody would take them. I mean, this whole business of... America not being willing to take Polish citizens doesn't start in 1939. It's the course. It's it's the the one of the one of the defining features of Polish statehood is that whereas the United States of America took people from those territories before 1918, it doesn't take many from 1918 to 1939. So if we're going to measure how objectively afraid people were, you have to also consider the size of the populations and the size of the quota in the United States. Um, but, I mean, I'm sure you'll agree with me that in Poland and Romania and the Soviet Union it wasn't great. And if you look at documents from people who, not just the German Jews themselves, but documents from Jews who were looking at the whole situation, right, whether, like, say, it's the Jewish Authority um, or other Zionists, what's striking about those documents is that they tend to put Germany in a group along with Romania, Poland, and the Soviet Union and talk about how things are bad one way in this country, they're bad another way in this country, they're bad another way in, in, in this country. And I think, I mean, I think that's, that's, worth, that's worth pausing and, and reflecting upon. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you that those kinds of policies can lead to flight. And they did. But they can't lead to a Holocaust. And they didn't. That's, that's, the, that's the argument. Yeah, of course. I'm not saying, right. But, they, but the Holocaust is the murder of 5.7 million Jews. That's not the same thing as the flight of 150,000. It's a, it's a completely, I mean, the things that we need to explain the flight of 150,000 people are different than what we need to explain the murder of 5.7 million people. Um, and, even, and, so, and even when those, and, and when those German Jews are killed, um, they're only killed after Germany has the places to kill them in. 
they're not killed in Germany, right? They're killed in, or not killed in pre-war Germany. Um, some of them are for Kristallnacht and the people right. who are killed in the concentration camps. It's not the same orders of magnitude, but yeah. it is not insignificant in relation to the size of the community, which is why you have such fear already well before. No, no, I agree. I just, what I, what I, res- I mean, and, and I write about this too, but it's not, that is not going to explain for us the Holocaust. There isn't a narrative or a causal force on that which is going to get us, which is going to get us to the Holocaust. There are other people who have other reasons for fear in Europe. There are other people who have much greater reasons for fear in Europe at that time and who are also running away and trying to flee. And in those situations, there isn't a Holocaust. What we need to be able to explain is how, um, is how the, well, I mean, one way to put the question is why is it that most German Jews survive, right? Um, why do most German Jews survive and most Soviet Jews who are under German occupation do not? Um, and, and in order to get to that, one has to, one has to move into, oh, I, I mean, I missed Robert's first point, which is very well taken. The germ, what's special about the German state is that that efficiency is applied to the destruction of other states. So my argument is not that Germany doesn't exist as a state. My argument is that the German that the German statehood is an instrument for destroying other states, which is not entirely unprecedented in the history of colonialism, by the way, um, in, or in the history of the U.S. for that matter. But it's it's um that's the thing. I mean, I'm, the claim is never that Germany isn't a state. The claim is that Germany. The special thing about and so your point about the concentration camps is very well taken because the concentration camps show what happens with statelessness, but still on a relatively small scale. When you, when you then put the SS in charge of much larger territories, you then get a, you then get a, a difference which becomes a difference in, 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 in quality. Um, the Dutch, yeah, I mean the Dutch, that, that your, point is, your point is my point. Because if it were anti-Semitism or the lack thereof, which we take as our predictor of how Jews are going to fare, then we would then we let's say we know nothing about what actually happens, but we just take our own views or contemporary views about anti-Semitism. Then we and contemporaries would both say the Dutch Jews will do the best, but they don't. Which and and that's by the way true for Europe as a whole. If you took a survey of Holocaust specialists about the level of anti-Semitism, whatever that you know, however we might come to our conclusions, or if you look at contemporary sources, there is no correlation between levels of anti-Semitism and how many Jews survive in a certain part of, of Europe. So, I mean, your, your your question is is my argument. I mean, what one has to explain, and people were asking this question in 1943 and 44 too. Why why are so many more Dutch Jews dying than French Jews when everyone knows that the French are so much more anti-Semitic? Right? That's the question as it was posed in Western Europe at the time. And the answer is that the, 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 the French, I mean, there's a lot to say about France, but very briefly, the answer is that the French occupation was a fairly conventional military occupation in which the French state retained in, in most mutual respects its sovereignty, whereas the Dutch occupation was by far the hardest, the harshest German occupation in Western Europe. It's the one that's most like the East because it was carried out by the SS who brought in um, very serious numbers of their own personnel. Um, and I can go through the details, but that's, that's the explanation. I would like to hear a little bit more on how you situate yourself uh, in Black Earth vis-a-vis the work of Raul Hilbert, whose work has been recently celebrated or remarked on and in, the, in the conference that took place in Berlin in the last couple of days. Uh, because I, you know, some of the things that you mentioned, the ecology aspect, you can also do with Hilbert, but within another slightly different from paradigm, we talked about the ecology of death camps. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's, a, there's a clear point here. Um, so I just wonder where you sit with yourself. 
I try, I was trying very, there's so much, there's so much, as you know, Holocaust histori historiography and so many, there's so many stars in the firmament, you know, towards which one could align oneself. So I tried very hard in the book not to, not to do that, not to begin with the gesture of where I am vis-a-vis -vis the institutionalists and where I am vis-a-vis -vis the intentionalists. Um, but what I would say about Hilberg is that, and the, the, the most important things about Hilberg is that what he achieved in the time um, was, is unbelievable, right? I mean, his, his, his synth the, the fact that somebody could achieve a synthesis like that with so little to lean on, I find, I find remarkable. Um, and, the, and the thing that you say about Hilberg I completely agree with, which is that there is no argument about the Holocaust that anybody ever makes, no matter how seemingly unorthodox, that is not somewhere in Hilberg. Everything that, even my argument about state destruction, which actually flies in the face of his basic trend of argument, even that, he has a footnote where he talks about how the percentage of Jews who die actually correlates quite strongly to how thoroughly the state was destroyed. So basically every argument that everybody has ever made, I think in Hall, it's like, it's like um, the way Russian literature comes out of, you know, um, Gogol's overcoat. I mean, basically everything that anybody has ever said, I think, is somewhere to be found in, in Hilberg. Now, um, my, the, the different, the, 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 there, there's some basic differences. One is, um, I'm, I'm strongly resisting a tradition which, which, um, which he, he in a way justifies by his very existence, which is the tradition of monolingual research. Um, Hilberg, like, he'll, there, there, there are a number of cases of you know, researchers of the Holocaust who might even for biographical reasons have used other languages but, but didn't. And my claim is that, I mean, for basic historiographical reasons, we, we generally write about empire when we can using, using reciprocal sources and not just the sources of the, of the imperial power. But also that languages, um, languages other than German, not only give you perspectives, um, which is a moral argument, but also give you arguments that the Jews just notice things that you're not going to see. And, you know, so that's, that's, that's where I differ from Hilberg, beyond the obvious way, which is that I'm, I'm trying to work with a politics of, of non-politics. I'm trying to describe a politics which can't be reached by, um, or which can't be reached by, let's call it hybrid or permutated versions of German administration. I mean, what Hilberg does to miraculous effect is he shows you how far the German sources can take you. And he shows you what German power looks like in all these nooks and, and crannies. Um, it's extraordinary that you can do that. And I don't even vaguely pretend that my book has, has that, kind of, that kind of detail or reach. But what I'm trying to describe is a situation which Hilberg, I think, doesn't and can't describe, which is the politics of state destruction, or the, the politics where you, what happens when you follow the chronology of how, of how a basic, basic political units are removed. Or to put it in a different way, maybe a simpler way, um, in, in my book, there are multiple political actors that exist in 1939 or 38, and I'm trying to see what happens when they, when they go away. Um, that's, different from, that's different from Hilberg. Hilberg is trying to see what happens when a German power, which in the first part of his book, he's already brought to its perverted extreme, perverted extreme how, how, what that power looks like elsewhere. Right? That's something which is pretty common in the field. Um, in, the in a different way, that's what Schall Friedlander does. As you, 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 get, you get the German state to where you need it in the first part, and then in the next parts, you show what that power looks like elsewhere. I'm working against that. Yes, uh, well, first of all, thank you, sir. Um, I haven't felt this way since I, since I read Modernity and the Holocaust by Talmud, so this is amazing. Um, I, I had a few philosophical questions. So um, the first one is this idea, this Hitler's idea of 
um, of the rejection of, of any kind of solidarity, whether it's Christian or Jewish or communist um, or you know, kind of liberal. Um, how, how related is this belief to Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy? And how much is it the child of, of, um, you know, of that philosophical tradition? Um, second thing I want to ask, uh, you talked about statelessness and, and the creation of this situation of statelessness. So what are the implications of your argument for uh, Arendt's uh, banality of evil? Is there still space for the banality of evil in this, um, in, in this situation of statelessness? Uh, where um, the point is not about the existence of bureaucracy, but actually the, ab the absence of bureaucracy. And that's exactly what she was arguing, that banality of evil was the child of bureaucracy. So, um, yeah, thank you. I'm going to start with Arendt. My view about Arendt is generally that even when she's wrong, she's right. <laughs> that like dialectically, when she's wrong, even when she's wrong, like you can find in her mis you can, you can find you can find an argument b beneath her claim, which when you change the empirical priors a little bit, then turns out to be right. So, I so with 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 um, with banality of of evil, as you will know, what Arendt is primarily concerned with in that book, as, as elsewhere when she reflects on the Holocaust, is a condition of thoughtlessness. So Arendt is, uh, what Arendt thinks that it's, it's you know, she starts with a basic error in ethics, which is not recognizing the other as, um, not recognizing the other as, as an ethical being. Um, and for her, that's, um, I mean, you'll have to correct the way I talk about this, but for her, that's an it's a kind of epistemic problem that what ph philosophy has to begin with um, the the recognition that there are other minds in the room. Thinking begins with a recognition that there are other that there are other thoughts, and so the whole the whole empirical apparatus of banality of of, of, of Eichmann in Jerusalem is meant to get us to see Eichmann as a thoughtless person in that sense. And so the way that she could be right, even if she's wrong, is that it might not be that it's bureaucracy which does that work. Um, I, I, don't, I don't personally think that it is. I mean, I think it, it does it to some extent, but I actually think that that, that argument is actually a, is, is a German excuse a little bit. That, um, and it was actually made as a German excuse by Germans shortly after the war, that you know, we were just a piece of a machine, and um, you know, whereas in fact, there's some, some of the people who were making that argument themselves had stood over death pits. But, what if it's the case that we're much better at seeing um, people as people, especially in a world before any notion of human rights? Um, uh, well, okay, I'll, I'll bracket that because that could be contested. But we're much better at seeing people as people um, when they are in a political realm. And that if I can take you out of the political realm completely, it then becomes very hard for other people to treat you like if one imagines, if I can point a finger at you, it's just so evil that I'm not even going to do it. But if I could point a finger at you and make you and make you stateless, your life from that moment would change in this university, in this country, the way people would treat you. Um, I mean, we don't need you know to we don't need to refer you know to the all too obvious case of you know refugees to to to, to make this point. So it may be that she's right, but that the thing that makes it easy for people to dismiss others as people is the stateless condition. And then we refugees, she comes very close to saying that, actually, in, 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 in 1943. Um, and then, you know, to flip this around, 
in a part of the book that I didn't talk about, I, I write about the diplomat rescuers who had two things going for them. Um, one thing was that they had this almost magical ability to, conf to reconfer state recognition upon people. So, um, so uh, Sugihara in, in Lithuania um, and, and Karl Lutz and Ralph Wallenberg in Budapest these are, the, these are people who can save thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews because they can themselves confer a kind of state recognition. They can give people papers. So they had to be clever about it. But that's the other part, is that they had a thought, right? I mean, diplomats could do this, but most of them didn't. A few did, but the ones who did clearly had some kind of a thought. You know, Wallenberg wanted to do it. Um, there, was something, there, was some, there was something special about Sugihara, as Jews remembered him, as other people remembered him too. Like they could do it, but they had, there was something in them that made them more likely to show solidarity with, with other people. Okay, on the, on the first question, um, uh, Jew, oh, Nietzsche. I, no, I, I, don't, I, don't think it's, I, don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's Nietzsche. Nietzsche's attitude, attitude towards Jews is... is um, is much more. I mean, as I read him, you're probably a better reader. But as I read, as I read Nietzsche, his, his attitude towards Jews is much more ambiguous. I mean, Jews have a power to create a civilization, which we now find ourselves in, and it's up to us to break out of that civilization. But that's not the same thing as thinking that that civilization is entirely evil, and that and that in, in order to remove that civilization, we have to actually remove its creators. I think that's a long way from Nietzsche. I think that I mean Hitler is a kind of. He's, he's, I, in the, in the, one of the things that I do in Black Earth is that I take the whole first chapter and I try to explain Hitler's thought. Um, and I do think that it's coherent, but it doesn't, it's, not, it, it can be, it can, it's coherent in itself. It's very hard, though, to put it in a clear genealogy because he's grabbing things from, 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 here, from here and there. Uh, certainly, Victorian science is very important to him because he thinks Victorian science is science, right? He thinks, okay, we've figured out it's the survival of the fittest. That's it. And of course, the science of 1924 has, has all kinds of other things to say um, that are less determinist and less reductionist and more self-aware. But he thinks that science is, like, the science is what a reductive reader of, you know, a very reductive reader of Darwin would have thought it was. And then another, I mean, so this whole idea that the Jews are responsible for all bad ideas, that gets, in my view, I mean, colleagues discuss this, but in my view, that, that, that view gets completed in 1919. It doesn't come from a philosophical source. It comes from white Russians, um, immigrants, from, um, immigrants from the Russian Civil War who are bringing the, the protocols of the elders of Zion physically, but also bringing the idea that the Jews are responsible for communism. Hitler, up to that point, was more conventional. He thought the Jews were responsible for capitalism. Hitler was anti-capitalist. Um, and then there's the anti, they're anti-capitalist he, they're responsible for capitalism and communism. And from what might seem like, I mean, that's the thing that people always make fun of when they make fun of Hitler. But what Hitler does is he says, the thing that these things have in common is that they, rec they, both, requ they both require recognition. So whether it's a contract or whether it's working class solidarity, it's still recognition. So they're both equally Jewish ideas, just like Christianity, right? So as I, as I read him, um, it's the arrival in 1919 of that idea which closes the circle. And that, it's not philosophy, you know, it's, just a conspiracy theory. Okay, yeah. It's also a philosophical question, a more general academic one, maybe. Um, I'm not a historian, a proper historian, I'm a music historian, but it's by extension probably related. And it's about your understanding of what an academic in today's world has to do in relation to your historical work. Now, in your recent work, I, as far as I see it, you have embarked on another attempt maybe to enlist uh, Mark's thesis that uh, 
philosopher and by extension the academic has to change the world, not just to explain it, to discuss it. And you do that on the basis of your groundbreaking work and in the today's post-truth debate that we are all having, uh, where facts are sort of put into the, into the back burner and are tweaked as necessary in order to explain an ideology. Uh, that, of course, relates to how you describe the party state when in Black Earth you discuss how Hitler rejects or ignores the concept that you might actually use fertilizer to feed your people rather than, no, we still need all that land. So there's an example for that, and that is what happens today in different contexts again. Um, and when you said, for instance, that uh, there are many Holocaust conferences that don't talk about the Holocaust, but about the understanding of people on the Holocaust, in some way that's similar, because yeah. it is about a secondary meta whatever level that talks about what we make of it rather than what the facts are or let's to a less degree what the facts are so the relationship between facts and our ideology and uh, what we how we should use this today in order to deal with the world that I think in all countries that we work in in western countries certainly I feel in a certain uh, need to engage with students for example all the time and how do you um, See that for yourself. I think the question was so beautiful. They put, I'm, I don't, it's going to be better than the answer. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've matched that, but I'll try. Um, you started your talk um, with a brief comment about relationship of history to memory. You said that approximately 70% of all conferences have now to do with the memory of the Holocaust rather than the Holocaust. More than 90%. So 90% even. I work in memory studies. So. Um, you win. I wonder whether... <laughs> I said, you win. <laughs> no, 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 it's not about that. It's about a relationship because you, you, it seemed to me that you tried to resurrect the opposition between uh, history and memory in very hard terms, and I don't think that's necessarily necessary. And in your talk, then, you actually um, used examples that are not hard historical facts. You quoted poetry... And you used, at the end of your talk, um, the story, a story, a narrative of a woman who tries to survive, who talks to a man who saves her life. It's a lovely story, but it's a story. So it's, I, I wondered about why you see the need to resurrect the binary between history and memory in such strong terms, especially since your argument actually drew in material that is not necessarily historical in the first instance. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to take these in reverse order. There's a kind of relationship between them. So I, I, I tried to explain, I mean, I, I'm not, with the limited amount of time, I'm not going to go into all the ways that history and memory relate to each other. You know, of course, like, there's a basic sense in which history cannot happen without memory because history depends on written sources, and written sources depend upon people's memory. But uh, there, there, is, there is in the field, um, I think, the tendency which I described, um, which is, it's not to say that memory studies aren't of value. It is to say that any, any approach can cut off other approaches. And the, as a matter of, just, I mean, I'm going to say it, as a matter of fact, if you look at the history of the historiography of the Holocaust, there was a memorial turn in which memory took up more and more and more of the field, and does. I mean, it, it's, this is, I will now fall back on, on, on the facts and the numbers about this. If you look at the, not just the percentage of conferences, but the percentage of papers at the major Holocaust conferences, that percentage also is more and more and more about memory. And I mean, just anecdotally, when people ask me questions about the Holocaust, they're almost always questions about, which assume that we know that the, what the thing is. 
And I, I, so when I came into this field, I'm answering your question as straightforwardly and personally as I can. I came into this field from another place. I came into it as an East European historian who just happens to know German because German is one of the languages that we're supposed to know. And I was really struck by the, the highly memorial character of the field in the absence of basic knowledge about what actually happened. So the average person working on the Holocaust in the English-speaking world still thinks that the Holocaust happens in concentration camps, which is just not true. I mean, it's like thinking the Civil War happened in Nevada. It's just not true, right? And so there, and so um, I'm very interested in memory. I've written a lot about memory. The Reconstruction of Nations is almost entirely about memory. I, I spend a great deal of time on, on those issues, and a lot of my work is about timescapes, and, and I, I, I'm perfectly capable of taking these things and working them out in sophisticated ways. But on this question, where the whole rationale for putting at the center of memorial culture was that it was so important, and yet it seemed to me that people didn't actually know why it was so important. That's what I'm going after. So um, it's, I don't think that I'm making any kind of, I don't think I need to make a hard distinction between one and the other, nor do I think such a thing is really possible. But I am talking about where the field was, or still is, right? When I wrote this in, in 2014, um, when I say that basic things like the Holocaust started, you know, with an order to kill women and children, that half the Holocaust took place by shootings, um, that um, many, if not most, of the collaborators were double collaborators in the East. Uh, th these things are just not known in the field. And my move is to say, if we're going to get if we're going to take the Holocaust seriously, then we have to have the most important facts in the discussion. My interpretations are not the only possible interpretations, but I would, I would, I would ride very hard, for example, on the thing I said earlier, that if the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is not in the story, then that means the tail is wagging the dog, that what we think has happened is driving the way we write about it, um, as, opposed to, as, opposed to what, you know, as opposed to the things we can figure out that have happened. The other thing with memory is that so now what you say about, I mean, it's, it's nice what you say about the, the sources, but I mean, for me, the very striking thing is the way that focusing on memory can lead to the use of sources that are convenient as opposed to sources that are inconvenient. Because with, with, um, if we're going to do them a memory, you know, we can do the memory of A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. We can do the memory of, of, of our own nation, or we can do the memory of a specific thing. If we're going to do the Holocaust, then, then these sources take on a different meaning, right? So for me, like Elena Lipschitz, that's not a story. I'm giving it to you the best I can because, you know, for reasons of pedagogy and argumentation. But th that is a, you know, that is a seven-page document in New York written in Polish, which was deposited in 1948, right? Which I read and which nobody else has read. And there's a whole lot more of that stuff to be, to be read. And I'm like, I may be able to do things with it that sound, you know, poetic. And in that sense, like, I'm happy that you said so. But for me, that's a historical source. And for me, like, there's a great sadness that we've gone so far in the memorialization of the more familiar but less important parts of the Holocaust and have done so little with the memorialization in Ukraine and Belarus and, and in, in, in Russia. For me, that's a great sadness. It's a great sadness for me that so few people in the field writ large have learned Yiddish. If we were serious about memory, we would be serious about a language which every German and historian of Germany could learn in a weekend. Um, we would be serious, six weeks. We'd be, if we were serious about the memory of Jews, we would be learning Yiddish, right? All of us. So anyway, I'm trying to answer your question. All right, on, the, on, on, the, um, on this, 
You, your, your, answer, your, your question was a much more beautiful answer to your question than I've ever given in response to that question because what you point out is a common point between what I regard as my two vocations. So I, I believe that being a historian is one vocation and I believe that being you know, an, an, an advocate or a civic activist or an engaged intellectual or what have you is a different vocation where the rules are a bit different. So I, I, spend, I spend a lot of my time now um, talk in, in, in very different sorts of settings, you know, with, with, groups of, with groups of political activists late at night, you know, or with people in um, retirement centers or synagogues or churches who are trying to figure out what to do in the United States of America. And I'm really glad I'm doing that. Um, I'm really glad that I'm doing something. Uh, and, you know, of course, the way that I engage and the kinds of things I talk about are quite different. But what you've done in your question is you've identified something which actually brings the two vocations together. Usually when I answer this form of question, I'm trying to explain what's different about public, about public political work and about historical research. But you've actually identified something fundamental, which I think is the same, um, um, or which enables both, which is the concern for factuality, which um, has a convenient, but I think also morally sound, overlap. Um, I cannot imagine pursuing history, um, even when even, even, whether it's the history of memory or whether it's the history of something else, without the normative pursuit of factuality, which I'm happy to accept, you know, all, every possible reservation and, you know, treat it as an asymptotic thing, right? I realize I'm never going, I'm never, like, if Kant couldn't do it, I can't either. But, um, but, but the, I, the, that normative pursuit is, the, is a thing which unites both. Because as you've also suggested, more eloquently than I'm going to, in the present political climate, the pursuit of factuality is a political act. You cannot pursue factuality without, without changing the political world ar around you because the political world that we're living in is one that is, I mean, this is interesting, this genre is actually really important here. The world that we're living in here has a, has a fictional character. Um, and, I, I'm, and now I'm now going to like work this out for a second. Can I can I work this out sure. for a second? Um, so when when Boris Yeltsin was sick and drunk, and they were looking for a successor, the political technologists around him in the Kremlin had an opinion poll to find out who the most popular character in Russian television was. Um, and then, having identified that character, they looked for the person in real life who was most like that character. The character was called Max Dierlitz, and he was a Soviet double agent in Germany, a German-speaking Soviet spy. And for that reason, they tracked down Vladimir Putin. Then, uh, so then, okay, now shift to America, where you have a, a, a multiple failure as a real estate developer, a man called Donald Trump, who owes billions of dollars to dozens of banks, has bankrupted six companies, who is then bailed out by people very close to the first fictional character, bailed out in the literal financial sense in the 90s and in the 2000s, at which point this Mr. Trump becomes a television character himself. On television, he plays a successful real estate developer, which he's never been, and, and, in, and as a successful real estate developer, he then fires people, and that becomes his thing. Like, and, but it's a, it's a fiction. He never was that thing, and he's playing a character on, on television. So one fictional character crosses a line to reality, and then helps another fictional character cross the line into reality because then this person becomes the president of another country. And both of them generate the, 
they generate the everyday sort of barrage of untruth, but they also generate these larger and coherent fictions, like that Mr. Obama wasn't born in the United States of America, which more than half the Republicans in the United States believe. And that this, these fictions take up space. And so it just, just these things which we, which we would regard, I think, all of us as our everyday scholarly duty, then when we apply them more broadly without changing our ethics, um, then take on a political character. And that you're right, that's an awful lot of what I'm doing right now, is doing that and then trying to find ways of saying it that people will pay attention to. Perfect way to end a really stimulating afternoon, I think. And uh, thanks to Tim for coming yeah. to Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. You can find hundreds of podcasts in our archive at historyhub.ie.